Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and direct to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. Well, today we're asking, are Australia and the United States as culturally and politically close as we've always believed? Is our media giving us the real picture and is it moving us to question our relationship with the United States? As we watch the news from the United States, we see gun violence seemingly out of control, women unable to access abortions or even affordable birth control and transgender rights under question and protest, and of course more, some of which seems odd and unrelatable to us here in Australia. But a little is recognisable. Over the past few weeks, Australians have seen neo-Nazis come out to protest transgender rights, and in Sydney, a conservative Christian right movement violently protested what they say is an Australia changing too fast, at least on the transgender front. But one thing we do have over the United States is that when we have an election and there's a change of government, the transition of power is actually trouble-free. No January 6 rioting here. And of course, with Labor forming government in New South Wales last weekend, the entire mainland of Australia is now held by Labor governments. There's unlikely to be a sea of Democrat-held states after next year's US election. So on the one hand, Australia is getting closer to America through the AUKUS Defence Agreement, the one that will cost us $370 billion for a fleet of submarines that will arrive over the next 20 years to help us keep a check on our biggest trading partner, China. But on the other hand, Australia and the US really couldn't be further apart in terms of the problems which trouble us. So to talk us through these issues, we have with us Damien Cave, the Bureau Chief in Australia for the New York Times, and Jennifer Hewitt, who's the National Affairs Columnist for the Australian Financial Review. Well, thank you both for being here. It's a pleasure to have you on the program. As of last Saturday night, the mainland of Australia is governed by Labor governments from coast to coast. Um, Jennifer, what do you read into that? Uh, well, there's a you know quite a few quite a few messages that that came out of the New South Wales election. Um, I don't think you can go past the fact that it's very hard for governments to win you know a, a term after term after term, and there was definitely an it's time factor in the loss of uh, in, in the Perrottet's loss. But I also think um, it demonstrates that the Liberal Party um, around the country is having trouble identifying with, you know, middle Australia, which is, you know, still where uh, elections are won and lost in, in Australia thanks to um, compulsory voting. And uh, and the fact that they were unable to compete with Labor um, in this area and, and, and it now means that no government in mainland Australia uh, is uh, Liberal, I think, should should worry the Liberal Party immensely, um, and it's because it's not only that in Middle Australia in in, in many ways, but it's particularly uh, prevalent amongst um, the uh, the the lack of support is particularly obvious amongst younger voters and uh, women voters, and particularly professional women. So, are you talking there about a, a kind of broad demographic change where you know younger people are coming into the voting patterns? Are you talking about a change, a, a, a kind of cultural change in Middle Australia? 
Um, or are you talking there perhaps about the failure of the old culture wars and being able to discern um, uh, between voters who, who'd swing conservative or otherwise? Well, I think all three, actually. I mean, I, th- I don't think there's any really much doubt that the, the kind of centre ground in Australian politics has shifted it, it slightly left, you know, more more pro- progressive, and at the same time, of course, the um, older voters who have and and baby boomers who who did so much to be the dominant kind of demographic group are now losing um, in impact. Um, so I was interested to read um, today that you know those before born before 1964. Um, in 2011, they made up 53% of the voting age population, and now they're just 38%. So I think that's a kind of a dramatic change, um, and it's kind of playing out. Um, that's creating problems, I think, for the Liberal Party again. And at the same time, um, you know, younger voters, uh, they are more socially progressive. There's no... And as yet, there's actually little sign that they're kind of quickly changing to become more conservative as they as they become a bit older. But you'd think that, you know, younger voters w- would always be a little more socially um, and economically progressive. Damien, does that kind of ring true for you? Is that is that what we're seeing here, this phenomenon playing out where, where the the way younger voters see the world is actually changing, you know, generation to generation? I think we've seen that in a, in a number of different countries, including the United States and in parts of Europe, too. So I think part of the story is indeed demographic. But I agree that this says more about the Liberal Party than it probably says about Labour. You know, it's not necessarily that Labour has produced this, you know, upswell of love and support from young people so much as the Liberal Party just feels increasingly out of touch with what younger Australians and middle class Australians are looking for. And what I wonder, actually, you know, stepping back a bit is if this is the beginning of Australia finally having a conversation about what the middle is and how to protect that middle. I mean, I think for a lot of younger people who are completely priced out of the housing situation and, and you know, struggling in all kinds of ways to sort of get to that place that baby boomers just seem to take for granted sometimes as their birthright is, is, is something that is taking up the whole conversation in Australia. It may finally be the time where the country actually has a conversation about class and inequality and the structures that maintain, you know, privilege for certain people and not others in a way that the country hasn't really had in a long time. But there are some other touch points, aren't there, not in, in this whole debate about, you know, the way we are changing as a nation. And, and I'm wondering whether the, the kind of tri- the, the protests that we've seen in Victoria and in, uh, in New South Wales and Sydney in particular, um, inspired by Mark Latham, on the transgender issue are evidence of the, of, of the way there's this tension now in Australian society between the younger generation who want things to change and want it fast and, and and an older generation that is kind of struggling to keep up with the nature of that change. Jennifer, do you do you have a view on that? Well, I think uh, in terms of the kind of cultural changes, again, you know, that's happening um, around, uh, around the world. Um, and I, I, I do think, though, that there's a broader issue going on, which is the fact that... Uh, the the ability to kind of have rational discourse and differences uh, is increasingly being squeezed out. I mean, there are all sorts of reasons for it, um, but 
but I, I do think the, you know, you, you mentioned the kind of the violence that was incited by Mark Latham. Well, yes. Uh, on the other hand, you know, there's plenty of violence um, that and 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 um, whether you call it cancel culture or or very aggressive behaviour by his opponents, and particularly around this very emotion emotive issue of of transgender issues. I mean, you saw, I mean, you, many people would completely oppose what Posey Parker was kind of talking about, but the idea that she's in New Zealand and being kind of doused with tomato juice and things like that, and and having to be hustled out of the country um, uh, is, I mean, I've, I find that kind of disturbing as well. And yet, you, so I don't think you can say um, that it's that it's um, all coming from one side. Hmm. Damien, do, do you yeah. think is it? I mean, is I, it- I don't disagree, but but I, I do think, I mean, what's interesting to me is the degree to which that backlash around transgender and, and, and these protests have made, stayed on the fringe in Australian society in a way that they have not in the United States. And, and to some degree, I think you have to look to the last federal election. And, you know, Morrison, in some ways, tried to sort of run on some of these cultural issues, and he was destroyed. And so, so, you know, it's still not a part of the mainstream conservative conversation in Australia. And so I think that keeps a lid a little bit for now on on these issues and these conversations and they it keeps them from taking over the political debate in a way that is, is quite different from what you're seeing in the United States. So yeah, I think that's yes, I, I I completely agree with that that Damien. I mean it is still on the fringes. I think there's it hasn't taken over politics in in the same way that it has um uh, and become such a such a hugely divisive issue right down the middle in the US. I mean, I think Australia is once again sort of proving its pragmatism in some way, <laughs> you know, that it's it's gotten that back to kitchen table issues, you know, about and things about whether it's infrastructure or healthcare or education. I mean, the conversation in New South Wales is, you know, a degree of politics, as some of my neighbors were saying, it's boring and that's wonderful, you know, and like that, 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 that I think is, is a real credit to Australia kind of pulling itself back to the middle. I wonder as well whether, Damien, there might be a little bit of a copycat thing happening here as well because the whole, um, you know, which toilet will transgender people use began in the US, if I'm, if I'm not wrong, and that seems to have kind of become the, the focal point of the protests here in Australia, which is so trite. And, and and seemingly so, you know, it's, that seems so banal to me to have the debate on that level. You know, do, do you see that there's a bit of a copycat thing happening here? Is that what we're witnessing or is it something that is more, you know, more generic? Well, I, I think it's probably a bit of both. Like, I do think that there's a tendency for the extremes of the American right to have influence in Australia. And I think we've seen that during COVID lockdowns. We've seen that now with the transgender issue. Um, so there is some of that, but I, I also think that there's there seems to be, and you guys tell me if I'm wrong, but there seems to be some resistance to sort of importing the uh, you know America's culture wars to the same degree here. I mean, even if you look at New Zealand, you know, Ardern and what she was dealing with in terms of the abuse that she was dealing with long after the lockdowns and COVID, a lot of that was was ginned up by the American right and you know exported to New Zealand, and it had a pretty clear impact on her on her candidacy and just on her political career. And that hasn't quite happened as much here. And I, I'm not totally sure why that's the case, um, you know, but but it does seem like it's it's a copycat import issue, but that it's somehow still 
held held to a sort of fringe level. And, and I'm not totally sure why that's the case. And who knows? That could change too. Mm. Jennifer, what do you what do you think? Well, I think um, it, it kind of depends a little bit where you where you are. I I, I, I agree with with Damien that it's that we're, we always you know follow cultural trends in the US. I mean, you know, around the world does whether you know left or right or whatever we, we do. Um, um, but I still think that it, they tend to be much less um, uh, extreme and much less widespread. Um, but if you, for example, look at uh, Victoria, which had, of course, had the most extreme lockdowns of any state mm-hmm. in the country, the the sentiment there was was pretty extreme, and they still have, of course, again, you're only talking about a minority, but you have some very violent protests there, and and very kind of deep feeling. So, and I don't think, yes, that was influenced by by the. Um, by the US right but uh, but I don't think it it was kind of driven by it. Yeah, that's a fair point. I think Victoria in Victoria is actually an interesting example. I mean, maybe the warning of Victoria and you could argue the warning of of New Zealand is that when when the left goes too far, you know, the backlash becomes shift from being fringe to more mainstream, right? I mean, and and that that's the sort of risk now that Australia faces with as a country where it's so driven by labor and the left. If if labor goes too far in that direction, you can imagine a scenario where it, it empowers the right and some of the fringes of the right in the same way that it has in, in, in Victoria to some degree and in other parts of the United States, like Portland, Oregon. I mean, it's no coincidence that the places that are most leftward leaning are also the ones that have the most significant extremes on the right. There's there's a whole effort. I mean, it's it's what in the U.S. they call negative partisanship, where each side is more obsessed with hatred of the other than it is or of uh, affirmation of their own ideas. And so when one party goes too far in, in one direction, it just stirs up that that kind of hatred and, and partisanship that Australia, again, has so far avoided. But it's still very much a risk. And I think Victoria, in some ways, is a bit of a warning sign. So, so there are dangers then in having an entire mainland Australia looking red. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, that's, that's clearly the, the risk. I mean, um, the New South Wales Labor Party and Albanese's government is pushing very hard to stay in the centre, it seems. And so, but we'll see how long that lasts, you know, and, and it, it is also quite possible that their centre, that what is defined as the centre shifts. And I think this is what you were alluding to earlier on. To some degree, the, where the centre line is in Australia is probably shifting a bit leftward. And so that makes it easier for the left to veer into a territory that they may not see as extreme, but that some elements of the country might see as going too far. Jennifer, do you want to comment on that? Australia has not had a recession really for a long time. You know, obviously COVID created, you know, all sorts of economic problems, but there was also very, very generous government support, you know, from either Liberal or Labor governments, um, uh, Liberal at the state level, uh, at the federal level, and and including um, state and governments of both persuasions. Um, So I I think now what will happen is, um the the only kind of um suggest the, the only way that the liberals will get uh any kind of more traction than that and then the diminishing traction they have is if they can persuade uh voters uh, if, if economic times are tougher that labor governments are not behaving in the right way now that is a completely open question but but you would have to say that um millennials in particular have never seen a kind of 
economic recession, even though, as, as Damien says, things like housing, etc., and inequality have, have been growing substantially. Labor's come to to um, power promising, you know, a much better future, a much fairer future. But so far, most of that promises rather than delivery. So that that also may kind of test people's patience over time. So then are you, do you think that there's an upside for the Conservatives to actually up the culture wars? No, not really. No, I, I don't think there's any upside in upping the culture wars in that sense. It's I think it's going to be, back to Damien's point about um, pragmatism, if, what people are most concerned about now um, is cost of living and inflation, and it, you know the the economy and and the pressures on them, and and I think that will be far more important as well as as well as, and I think this can you know continues to be a huge issue um, that the Liberals have not handled well um, uh, is uh, the issue of climate change. There's still um, you know most people are very still very much in favour of taking greater action. And even though the New South Wales Liberal government was actually far more progressive than um, certainly the Federal Liberal Party, but even in many ways than the New South Wales Labor Party, um, it was kind of too late for them um, to get much advantage out of it. Uh, but but I think in general, th- this whole kind of question of how the ec- the economic and the energy transition play out will be more important than you know, culture wars, despite, you know, all the f- focus that we've now got on The Voice, for example. Right. Okay, I'd like to move us on, um, if we, if I can, to AUKUS, because that has taken up a lot of oxygen over the last couple of weeks. I mean, there is considerable concern here that it's going to tie us to, to Washington politically for a, a long time to come. Well, firstly, do either of you think it will? I mean, is that a reasonable concern to have, Damien? I mean, absolutely. It's it's a reasonable concern to have, and it is definitely uh, a step in that direction. But it's a step in the same direction that Australia has been going for a very, very long time. So I think it's probably a bit more incremental than it might seem, you know, that the United States and Australia's alliance has been expanding. And even if AUKUS did not exist, that would continue to be the case. You've got, you know, space up in Tyndall at Darwin being expanded for American bombers. You've got, you know, the pillar two of AUKUS totally separate from the submarines, which is about technology and space and a whole bunch of other things and partnerships that would happen anyways, probably even if AUKUS didn't exist. And so, you know, that relationship has been strong for a very long time and will continue to be strong because both countries see a real risk in a threat from China. And so, um, you know, the big question about whether or not the submarines are too expensive and ridiculous and will, you know, take away Australian sovereignty, those are all valid questions to be asking. But to some degree, the context, I think, would be the same even if you eliminated the submarines. And so, you know, Australia is going to have challenges in terms of its ability to say no to the United States if there is a war over Taiwan. And that would be the case whether AUKUS existed or not. It's just that AUKUS turns the dial, you know, a bit more, I think. So, Jennifer, is that, is that such a bad thing, given that, you know, we, we do share so many or we're told that we share so many important values and interests with the United States? And, and, and of course, we do, you know, have a close relationship that does date back to, to the Second World War. Um, or, or, or do you think that perhaps some Australians are thinking that those ties are becoming more, you know, a historical phenomenon and less relevant to a modern Australia? Well, of course, some some people would think that. Um, other people think just the opposite, um, which is that the, the changing situation in the region, most particularly China, uh, means that we 
face a very different position um, in um, in the you know Indo Pacific, Asia Pacific, whatever you prefer to call it, uh, and that there's a kind of a new need for um, alliances, uh, which you see not just with the US and the UK, but also with the US and Japan and 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 you know India and Australia and the US in the Quad, inevitable um, shift that's going to happen. And I take Damien's point. I mean, the, the relationship between the US and Australia has always been very close and AUKUS is just a kind of another extension of, of that, this idea of defence of Australia to forward defence, um, you know, meaning kind of uh, extending well beyond our shores to to uh, to, to cooperate with allies. Um, and I think that is, yeah, that is a big shift, but I also think it is, it's kind of realistic about how, you know, how these um, the tensions that are arising, the idea that Australia is going to sit here you know, and, and wait to be invaded or, of course, it won't be invaded, you know, it, it, like the whole kind of concept of, of what defence is has changed dramatically. It has changed dramatically. But I'm just wondering, though, whether, you know, if the United States continues to, you know, move further and further away from us culturally, for example, in terms of abortion rights, you know, voting rights, trans issues, if America becomes more isolationist again, do you, do you see that the connection between the United States and Australia might become fraught or even illogical from an Australian perspective? So in that sense, does it make sense for Australia to tie itself to the United States for as long as we uh, we seemingly are? It's definitely an enormous risk, right? I mean, AUKUS, the, the budget that they're talking about goes to 2054. I mean, who knows what the United States is going to look like in 2054. But it, 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 the context, you know, is important. The entire region is going through an effort to create some of these loose coalitions along with build up their own militaries. I just had a big story in the Times about this. And so Australia also needs to understand, and the people who are debating this need to see Australia within this broader regional and global context. And so, you know, these questions are going to come up not just for Australia, but also for Japan, which is doing a lot more in the region and doing a lot more with the United States. And Australia and Japan and others are creating relationships on their own separate from the United States. So what you see is both more investment in relationships with the United States and more investment in other kinds of relationships that are a hedge against the United States going crazy, getting isolationist, whatever you want to decide it, it's gonna, it might do. And so, you know, this is a pretty reasonable response, at least a lot of the experts I've talked to have said, you know, this is a rebalancing effort. It's driven by China's massive, massive increase in its military. Every part of the, of, of the world, but especially this region, is trying to figure out how to respond. And they're, they're inevitably making bets that have risks. And there are going to be trade-offs. And this is the new era we live in where it's simply more unsettled and more dangerous. And that's really the world as it is today. And, you know, some of this debate, I think, is still catching up to that reality, not just in Australia, but in Washington, too, where they're still talking about Ukraine all the time. So, you know, this side of the world in the next 10 years will probably define the next chapter of history. And so that's what Australian officials tell you privately that they believe. And that's what many officials in the region believe. And so what you have now a little bit is an, is an education of the public in what officialdom is seeing. And, and it's and it's going to take some time and there's going to be some debates. And it means that some decisions are going to work out and some are not. And there's a ton of pressure on everyone to get this right. And it's, you know, but it's a different moment. And, and that, I think, is what you're seeing in office is the big ticket item that says, hey, 
we're living in a totally different world. And, and I do think that's an accurate, accurate statement. Which I think is probably a very easy statement for the United States to put. I think it's less easy for Australia, given that, for example, China is our biggest trading partner. Jennifer, you know, it's one thing to imagine a brand new future for Australian defence, but at what point does, you know, economic reality begin to weigh heavily on whatever that decision might be? Well, I mean, obviously economic reality is is going to be important. I mean, and I think there's been a certain dialing down of, you know, obviously from the rhetoric from about China from this government. Um, and there's also been, of course, it suited China at the same time to do it because its worry, wolf warrior deposit, um, uh, diplomacy was not working very well and it wasn't just agitating countries like Australia. It was agitating countries th- throughout the region along with its behaviour. Um, so, uh, yes, of course, you know, it, the, the economy is very important. And if uh, nobody wants to kind of contemplate, you know, war and every, and, and but you, you could argue that, uh, that at all these defensive actions that countries, not just Australia, are taking uh, in terms of increasing their ability to defend themselves to kind of to, to push back uh, against any aggressive behaviour by China are a way of avoiding that. So, you know, I don't. I just don't see it in that kind of binary way that you've got to choose. You know, economic ties or, um, or, or you know, an alliance with the US. I, I just don't think it's as binary as as that. And I mean, I, I think obviously it's a difficult um, balancing act, but a lot of it will be will depend on the behaviour, not so much of of the of of the region and other countries and the West loosely. It will also depend very much on the behaviour of China. Okay. Look, uh, so finally, I'd just like to talk briefly about, um, bring it back to media issues, but we've got Barack Obama in the country at the moment on a speaking tour. On on Tuesday night, he was telling audiences in Sydney of the increasing problems of um, polarisation, and he laid the, the blame largely at the feet of Rupert Murdoch, Though he did point out that polarization had come in, had come about in part because the whole media we're all obsessed with engagement. Um, but of course, the most profitable form of engagement is anger, right? I mean, Damien, do, do you think that Obama is right on this front? Well, it's interesting because he was really at the center of this surge of anger that Fox News and and other right wing outlets really pushed forward. Some of it driven by racism, some of it driven by other issues in the United States. But I think he's speaking in some ways based on his own personal experience, which is not invalid. Um, and I do think that you know what you see in in, the, in like some of the legal cases that are emerging now around Fox News, where there's this you know divide between what hosts are saying on air and what they're saying behind the scenes. What what I think that tells you is actually in some ways contradictory to what Obama is saying. What what's happened is that the audience is now driving the conversation in a way that both media companies that depend on them for money, like Fox News, and to some degree candidates like Donald Trump are now subject to. I mean, they've stirred up this extreme base, gotten them used to misinformation. Um, you know, and questioning of facts, arguing with the most populist, you know, form of, of polit- political rhetoric you can. And now, not surprisingly, they feel like they're in charge and trying to pull that that p- part of the population back from the brink is extremely difficult. So even as you have News Corp saying, OK, you know what, 
climate change is real. We're going to shift our conversation to that. Even as you have Tucker Carlson behind the scenes saying, you know what, these conspiracy theorists who are, you know, saying things about January 6th, United States are crazy. He's still not saying that on the air. And, and, and so there's become this deference to the masses that I think is partially uh, the media has fallen into that trap in some ways, but so has the political class. And so, you know, this is, I think, the new challenge for the United States, in particular with polarization, is we've moved past the period where you can just blame the media or blame politicians. And what you need now is like leadership from somewhere to, to pull back a large chunk of the country from conspiracy theories, hatred and political violence, which is only increased. So it's, it's a really tricky thing, but I don't think it's fair to blame the media um, as much as as Obama might like. He's, he's actually notoriously been pretty tough on the media as president too. He was extremely secretive. Getting public records requests out of the Obama administration was always extremely difficult. He's he's generally has a reputation for being someone who expects the media to offer adulation and has generally been tough with the nuts and bolts of transparency. <laughs> Jennifer, do you, would, you, would you agree with that assessment? Or do you think that, that perhaps there's a bit of a shift happening in the United States, in particular in the media section, and in particular, for example, at Fox News, in reaction to the whole Dominion case, which has really been quite damaging, um, you know, it's shown that commercial consideration tops editorial considerations and, and that the network itself is as much a prisoner to Trump's, you know, ratings appeal as um, as the population or, or those that support him um, seem to believe. So do you think that there has been a shift in, in the way the United, the US media is approaching the issues that Damien has just been talking about? Well, I, I agree with, with Damien that once these kind of forces have been unleashed, it's kind of, it's very difficult to control them. Um, and that includes um, the, Murdoch, the Murdoch media. I mean, clearly Fox News, you know, did have a huge impact on and has had a huge impact on on stirring up anger and divisions. But it's not just Fox News. I mean, the advent, I don't think we can underestimate the the um, in, impact of social media and the ability of people to, you know, and, and all sorts of crazy people to, to kind of coalesce um, and, and through through and, and connect with one another through those um, through those platforms. And and that that is, you know, honestly, I, I just think it's completely beyond control now. I don't know how you actually ever uh, pull that back uh, because that, again, the polarisation, which is very, so much more obvious and extreme in the US means that the kind of the middle ground area again has kind of disappeared. It's disappeared. It disappeared uh, in politics. Obviously, it it kind of is disappeared in the media, but it's just disappeared in in society generally. And that has I I just think that makes it very very. Um, hard to predict how that works out, but it's certain, I don't think it's just a media thing at all, I like a, you know, in a sense of traditional media. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, do you think that then that social media has kind of overtaken the role and the influence that we've traditionally assigned to the Murdoch press in Australia, for example, where, of course, it is, you know, a dominant publisher? But we've we've liked to think over the last few decades that Murdoch can, you know, can turn, um, can turn elections. Do you think that social media... No, well, I, I actually don't think that's true. <laughs> I've never thought that's true. Um, but obviously, there's influence there, of course. Uh, but, but no, I don't. I don't think they turn elections. If if that was the case, you'd have um, you'd have conservative liberal governments everywhere, rather than the reverse. Mm. Um, 
but uh, but I, I, I do think um, their influence is being increasingly overshadowed by, yes, it's just kind of a morph, whether it's, you know, Twitter or, you know, it just all sorts of social media platforms, um, which, which, of course, spread everywhere. Most people, certainly most young people, do not get their news or their views um, from from media, traditional media, Murdoch or anyone else. Mm. Damien? Yeah, I mean, I, I do agree with that. I mean, I think it's there. there is a relationship, though. There's sort of an amplification relationship where something might appear in the Murdoch press and then, you know, jump to social media. But these days, it often seems to go the opposite way, where you see something extreme happening in sort of the right-wing social media world, and then at some point it jumps back into the mainstream. And I think what that reflects is that for the Murdoch press and for Fox News, there's a fear of losing their audience to, to these new players and to these more conservative and more extreme you know, outlets, not just news outlets, which are smaller, but also social media sort of communities, right? Whether it's a podcast or just someone on YouTube or whatever the case may be. And so the the conservative traditional media, I think, is struggling with what to do with this. And that's what I think the Dominion case kind of reveals is they're afraid of losing their audience. And no matter how crazy their audience gets, they feel like they have to meet their audience out of the crazy, <laughs> you know? And so um, there's like economic pressures that are driving that, but I don't think they've necessarily figured it out. I mean, you still have so many of these other fringe groups that are really driving the conversation on the right. And, you know, especially in Australia, driving the conversation so far away from the mainstream that the politics is not heading in their favor, you know? And so I think that it's to some degree, the conservatism in, in Australia in particular is in the wilderness trying to figure out how to get back you know, to the center, this is something that will appeal to people. And they haven't, they definitely haven't figured it out. And I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, to be honest. I mean, some of these forces of extreme culture war debate that you see in the United States, which is normally where some of these ideas come from, are, are so extreme that it's it's hard to sort of see how that is a path back uh, to victory and power for, for the Liberal Party in Australia. It's, it's hard for me to see how that happens. Well, this might be an unfair final question then, but how do you both see the, uh, the the situation looking in, say, five years from now? Have we, at that point, rebalanced social media with traditional media? Have we have we come to some uh, middle ground in terms of the big issues that we've seen burbling away in the in in the cultural war sphere? What do we look like then, Jennifer? Well, uh, I wish I knew the it, what what is the last five years um, and actually long, longer than that has taught me is that um, uh, supposedly expert predictions in almost any field uh, tend, tend to be um, uh, overturned by reality and uh, unexpected things. Um, so I would be hesitant to be um, very um, confident at all about saying how things will work out in the next five years or what the situation will look like in the next five years. But I don't think that... Um, uh, there will be any let up in the um, in the growth of social media and individual actions um, and and views and kind of cacophony um, that I see. And, and so the idea of having a kind of more united kind of debate and and um, country in a way, I, I think, becomes more remote rather than less right. um, over the next five years. Right. Damien, would you agree with that? Uh, I think so. I mean, I don't see a sort of decline in the way social media works. I think there's a real risk in five years of there being a fair bit of discontent with labor failing to fulfill whatever promises it's made and, and what the expectations are. 
uh, in terms of equality, in terms of, you know, a whole bunch of different things. So there's there's inevitably going to be some frustration there. And how that plays out, I think the trend line suggests that what it means is less major party support, right? It means more um, focus on independence, more focus on other parties that are kind of emerging, and a more fractured political environment. And so it seems to me that the forces of entropy will continue. <laughs> um, and, and we'll see sort of where that where that leads. But you know, it still may end up being still mostly in the middle. That's sort of, you know, hopefully the beauty of Australia is that even as the debate changes, it still hovers mostly in that middle track. Right. Okay, look, I think we're going to leave it there. Both of you, thank you very, very much. Damien Cave, Jennifer Hewitt, it was a fascinating discussion. And um, let's get you back on the show again soon. Thanks, Thank you. On that note, I'd like to thank Damien Cave and Jennifer Hewitt for being on Fourth Estate, and thank you for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so that you can hear us talk about media, politics and, of course, everything in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle there is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Anthony Dockwell. My name's Monica Attard, and thank you for listening. Listener.